Welcome to the Two Acre Homestead Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa. On today's episode, I am excited to be joined in studio by Karen Velez of the Just Grow Something Podcast. Today's episode, we are going to be talking all things starting your garden, getting those garden plans going, seed saving, and a whole lot more. So stay tuned. Welcome to the Two Acre Homestead. Come along with us on our journey from a small suburban homestead lifestyle to our new lifestyle homesteading in the rural countryside of Southern Arizona. We'll share with you our tips, tricks, successes, and failures from both our past suburban lifestyle to our new rural lifestyle, all on the Two Acre Homestead. Karen, welcome to the show. So happy to have you here. Well, I am happy to be here, Lisa. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, Karen, tell tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, we want to know just a little bit about how you got into gardening, what inspired you to do that. All Give us just a little bit of background about yourself, if you don't mind. Sure. I'll give you the scoop. Um, yeah, I, um, I, and my husband actually both are, um, former U S Marines. And I say that, you know, I'm a U.S. Marine who started homesteading intentionally, but then accidentally became a farmer. I, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we, I started gardening, uh, just in a small corner of the backyard that I was living in, in suburbia, basically back in 2004. And it was a way to cut the family food bill a little bit because my middle daughter had come home and announced that she was uh, boycotting the school lunches. And I knew that it was going to cost me more to make the, you know, the stuff at home and send it with her than it was for me to pay for the school lunches. So I tried to find a way to cut that budget somewhere. I got really lucky because I quite literally had no idea what I was doing. And I simply took the seeds that I thought we wanted to grow, threw them in the corner somewhere and said, okay, grow, (laughs) do your thing. (laughs) And I got really lucky that it did. It did grow. And then about two years later, we actually moved to um, a five acre lot outside of city limits. And we were going to sort of do the, the homesteading thing. That wasn't really what we were calling it, but I just knew you know, we wanted to be a little bit more self-sufficient. And the first two things that I did was got chickens and expanded that garden to a full half an acre. And I mean, if you could have seen the little corner of where I was gardening and then jumping to breaking up and doing this full half acre garden, you'd have thought I'd lost my mind. And uh, I had <laughs> because that was a lot of food for all of us. Um Again, I got really lucky because it grew really, really well. And it wasn't until later on that I realized, well, yeah, the reason it grew really well was because I was planting at what used to be cattle pasture. So it was very, very fertile. Um, but we had so. so oh yeah, it was insane. And we had so much food. And I wasn't very adept at um preserving yet because that was a new skill that I was learning. And so we had all of this food and I didn't know what to do with it. And so we had friends, you know, that we were bringing over every weekend. I was sending them home with, you know, sweet corn and zucchini and all this stuff. 
And I just had this sort of visceral reaction to what I was doing. It was about more than just kind of digging in the dirt and providing for ourselves, which was its own, you know, sort of sense of empowerment. But then to feed other people, too, um, I was very drawn to that. And at still at this point, didn't really have any idea what I was doing. Not, you know, really. I didn't understand nutrients for the soil. I didn't understand, you know, weed control. Um, I, you know, didn't really have a sort of real plan as to what I, how I would grow the garden, but decided that we were going to start doing this as a farm business and started a community supported agriculture program and uh, started selling at farmers markets. And along the way somewhere, I went back to school, got my degree in horticulture. And this has been my thing ever since. Like I, I, love the feeling of growing for other people, but even more so now, I love being able to teach other people how to grow their own food. Because during this whole process, I really figured out exactly how much power there is in food. And everybody should know what it means to be able to grow a little bit of something for themselves, even if they don't do it on a regular basis. Um, but that has become my mission just to teach other people how to grow their own food. You know, I, I really couldn't agree with you any more than that because food is such a powerful thing, isn't it? I mean, there's that expression, you control the food, you control the people. And if we can control our own growing of our own food, then that kind of gives us not only more control over the food, that, you know, it gives us our own food sovereignty, so to speak, but then also it helps us with our health, health of our family, our community. And, you know, at the end of the day, homegrown food, especially when it comes to tomatoes, any food really, but I mean, there's nothing, I mean, there's nothing that beats homegrown. It's better than any restaurant that you could ever go to. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So when you were on this journey, I caught this just a little bit. Um, You had children when you started, when you started learning how to garden. How did that, because I know a lot of my listeners have children, small children, younger children, and they're looking to go down this journey as well. And um, how were you able to do that, all of that while raising a family? Mm-hmm. That was uh, that was challenging, but also very immersive for the kids. And I think, you know, when we were, it was just that small little garden, um, you know, the kids, it was sort of a novelty, you know, to them it was like, oh, look there, you know, there's cucumbers, we can pick the cucumbers or, you know, we can, we can grab this. Okay, that's great. And it, there really wasn't anything for them to do because it was so tiny. As soon as we expanded, um, they got into it a little bit more, and it was kind of thoughtful on my part in the way to do this because I wanted to make sure that they didn't feel like they were forced to work in the gardens. I wanted them to want to be there. And so planting things that were kid-friendly, things that they could go out and grab straight from the garden. You know, the younger ones, you're talking things like, you know, cherry tomatoes, things they can just pick right then and there mm-hmm. and eat. Um 
planting things that were specific to certain kids' interests. I have one that just absolutely loves fruit. It's all about the fruit. So trying to get the fruits going. Um, the boys loved going out and you know, picking the sweet corn right off the stalk and eating it while they were out there in the garden, you know, and for the longest time, I thought it was raccoons that were stealing the sweet corn. It turned out to be the boys going out, <laughs> eating, tossing them in a pile. So, you know, but then we, when we turned it into a farm business and it really was sort of the family business, the kids got into it a little bit more too. The boys kind of tended to graduate or gravitate toward the livestock side of things. Um, you know, and the girls, you know, it was like, okay, yes, maybe with, you know, the horses, the bigger stuff, but, you know, they tended towards, you know, the gardening just a little bit more, but everybody sort of pitched in and it was sort of expected because it was, you know, this is how we're feeding ourselves and we want you to be involved and we expect you to help contribute in some way to the household. And this is how you're doing it. Not to say that they didn't get compensated in some way if they worked with us like at the farmer's market, because for sure, you know, if they work with us, they got paid just like anybody else would. But when it comes to the home garden, yeah, I think it was more about get them early on kind of interested in it based on mm -hmm. things that they were already interested in. And then mm -hmm. it made it a little bit easier for them to be in there actually doing it when it maybe wasn't something they were interested in. You make me laugh when you're talking about cucumbers, because this past year, my youngest was learning how to talk um, during the gardening season. And so they would come out, you know, just massacre that garden. And um, cucumbers were all the rage this year was all about the cucumbers. And so they, my youngest couldn't say cucumbers, but he said poo papus. And for a long time, longest time, like, what in the world is a poo papu? And he's like, poo papu? Poo papu? Yeah, it was talking about cucumbers, but that's that's how you get it. You, you get them going by just let let them let them pick and forage and you know, let them experience the garden on their own. And that just yeah, that gets them going at a young age. <laughs> but the you know, the reason why I was asking you that question about the kids and and how you did it because I your kids are older. I know my my kids obviously are a lot younger. Poo papus. That clues you in. Um, <laughs> but, uh, the reason why I was asking that question is because I know for a lot of us moms who have younger children and we're trying to plan out our gardens, one of the things I, I've had actually people direct message me on Instagram and they've asked this question, how do I plan a garden when my kids' taste buds are changing every five seconds of the day? And I'm like, you know, combined, my children are six. So I, you know, I, I don't have the best advice. So since you, your children are a little bit older, you know, if you have some words of wisdom, that would be fantastic for our listeners. <laughs> yeah. You know, I did find myself in that situation on several occasions, especially once I learned to start doing more of the canning and such, you know, one year I had canned up a batch of pickles and the kids loved the pickles and they ate through them before, you know, before the winter was even over, we were out of pickles, you know? So the next year, I think I jarred up three times as many jars of pickles, making sure that we were going to have enough to get through. And those pickles lasted us for three years because the kids had moved on to salsa that year and decided they were going <laughs> to eat me out of salsa. So <laughs> I yeah. totally get it. 
Um, and I think when it comes to planning the garden, you know, planning specifically for kids is absolutely can be difficult. And what I generally recommend for people just in any planning, you know, phase of the garden is to figure out what it is that you eat the most as a family in general. What are you cooking with the most frequently? Or what are you most concerned about feeding your family that you don't want to come from the grocery store? If that means it's Mm -hmm. because it's, you know, the the most expensive to buy organic or it usually is covered with the most pesticides. It's on the dirty dozen list or whatever. Um, Or it's just hard to really get fresh in your area. Whatever the reason is, whatever is your priority is what you should make the most space for. If there are things that the kids maybe, like I said, loved the previous year, but you don't know if they're going to love it this year. Make sure that you are planting small plots of things that might be specific for the kids or give them their own garden plot and let them plan out or pick what goes into it. It's it's mm-hmm. all about engagement. And so if you can sit down with the seed catalog you know, and say, okay, you get four things in the garden this year. What do you want them to be? And let them go through and pick it and let them have a hand in somehow working with it. And it doesn't mean that you have to have them out there digging right alongside you because goodness knows a two-year-old <laughs> is just going to destroy your garden, right? Yeah, not much done there. <laughs> <laughs> but if they can be out there with you or they can see that it's growing, in my experience, if they see it, they've chosen it, they get a chance to mess with it, they can help pick it even, or they see it being prepared and they can say, I grew that. They get that same kind of excitement and feeling that we do when we grow our own stuff and go, oh, yep, I'm feeding myself. They got to pick it. It's just like, you know, giving them two choices in the morning of what they're going to wear to school, you know, or or wear for the day. You know, you don't give them the entire closet to choose from but they have these two and it gives them a sense of empowerment. So I think the same thing applies um, in the garden. Plant your basics, plant your staples, plan your staples for what you need, and then let the kids pick a handful of things that they want to do that year. Brilliant. 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 Thank you. (laughs) So let's... Let's get into some of the nitty gritty here when we're talking about garden planning, because right now, as we're recording this, we're in the, it's the shortest month of the year, but it absolutely feels like it's the longest month of the year. That is the month of February. Um, For those of you who listen to the show, you're in the Southern Hemisphere, that that means we're in the middle of winter and it just, it's just dragging on this year. So we're all sitting in our homes, nice and cozy with fires going and trying to stay warm. And um, we're dreaming and drooling over these mysterious seed catalogs. I don't know if you get these catalogs that I'm like, I didn't sign up for the seed catalog, but how does this seed how do these seed companies oh, yeah, know yeah. I, I plant gardens? <laughs> yep. I think they all share their lists. And I guess, I mean, I get these crazy. I'm going, I have never even heard of this company. Where did they come from? What do you know? Right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yep. <laughs> right. And, you know, and then you do, you know, you're, you're just obligated as a gardener. You just have to open it up. I mean, I don't know about you. I just have to, whether I've subscribed to it or not, know the company or not, I'm going to open it up anyway. 
And um, so long story short, we're all drooling over the gardening season that is to be. So I really want us to address if we can talk to the the gardener, the, the person who's never gardened before, the brand spanking new, you're just new to gardening and this is your year because it is your year and you're going to grow your garden this year. I promise you, you're going to do it and you're going to listen to the advice that we're giving you and you're going to make it happen <laughs> because we want you to succeed. So for those who are just new, how do they start planning a garden? What what are some of your tips? I'm going to share some of mine, but what are some of your tips too, Karen? So I think first things first, before you even start planning anything, you need to decide um, whether you're going to plant in ground or you are going to plant in like a raised container. Okay. And part of the way that you decide this is by doing a soil test, which is something that, and this is, this goes also for experienced gardeners. You should be doing a soil test every single season, every year. Because things can change much more dramatically than you think from season to season based on what you grew, based on how your soil erodes, based on all kinds of different factors. Um, so you can't start to grow something. You you shouldn't start to grow something. I did without doing any of this, but I know better now. Um, but you need to know what is in that soil. Like I said, I got mm-hmm. extremely lucky in both instances when I was first planting in two different locations that I had very fertile soil. Um, But if that hadn't been the case and that very first garden had just gone completely kaput, I might not have been tempted to do it again next year. I might've been discouraged and not planted a garden again. And so you need to know what you're working with. So doing a simple soil test and you can buy the little over-the-counter ones that are in, you know, the garden centers or whatever. Those are perfectly fine. Follow the instructions and figure out what you're working with. Um, If you want to do it, if you want to take it a step further, you can do a soil texture test um, or to figure out your texture and your composition. And I'm actually getting ready to do a podcast episode on that exact topic. And I'm also going to do an article on it on my website. So I can send you the links if that, you know, makes it easier for you. But you can just Google, you know, soil composition text or soil texture test. Uh, That will let you know the type of soil that you're working with, whether it's sandy or silty, loamy, if you have a lot of clay. That also is going to make a difference as to whether or not you want to start by planting in ground or if you want to plant with uh, in a raised bed or a raised container. I will say that while I think that raised beds, raised planters, containers, whatever, are much easier for gardeners to work with because you have so much more control over the soil that you're working with, it does take more setup. It does take more money to get going on those. Even if you're using Mm -hmm. scrap lumber or whatever to build your beds, you still have to fill it with something. And that means bringing in compost. um, If you, you know, you're not making your own, um, bringing in other, you know, soil and amendments and potting soil and that sort of thing. So, you know, on a, on a get, you know, get in the ground really fast and cheap and get going in ground, you know, obviously is, is the easiest way to get started. And uh, I just think you need to know what you're working with. So soil test for sure. 
I, I would totally agree with you on all of that. And I would add, if you're new to gardening, the one thing that you want to know is where you're gardening, where you're putting, where you're putting, because, you know, it's just like real estate location, location, location. So you want to make sure it's been my personal experience. Always make your garden face South. Mm -hmm. Um, Always make it South because that's where you're going to get your full sunlight. Try to avoid your garden facing North um, and try to avoid it only facing on the East. Now you might be in a situation where that's what you've got. And that's the only place that you can grow. Well, then grow in pots. Pots are, you know, I I always think pots are just the most underrated. You know, they they they're the underrated unsung heroes. (laughs) Because when you're in a situation like that, like let's say, for example, you're in a condo and you've got just like a small little backyard. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, like. I don't, I don't know the size, but you know, maybe a 12 by 12 backyard. We'll just say it like that. You know, that's a little, that's a little piece of land, but if you're East, if your, your backyard is facing East, well, you're just going to get that morning sun. So use your pots because you can move your pots around to where it will be, you know, in a strategic way where it can get the most sunlight that it possibly can. Um, but if at all possible, always face either south or west or southwest. Um, those are the best places to orient your gardening space. And also, I, you know, I agree with you, Karen. I, I, for those who are new to gardening, the other unsung hero is in ground. And I have, I have a mixture in my in my garden right now, I have a mixture of in-ground and raised bed. I use my raised bed for um, for just my annual plants, stuff that's going to come in, come out, come in, come out. My in-ground is all perennials. I No perennial will be in a pot as far as I'm concerned. They all need to be in-ground because they benefit that soil. Um, but your soil your, I would say the other thing is, like Karen said, soil health. Make sure it and and please, please stay away from synthetic fertilizers wherever possible. Um, you know, <laughs> Miracle Grow, um, anything like that. Try to stay away from those things because they will give you a synthetic growth. It will make it look like it's going to grow. And it will put on a little bit of growth, but that growth is not sustainable. Um, what's going to happen is, is the plants are going to look really, really good. And then they're going to crash and burn as hard, as hard and as fast as they did when they started looking like they were going to grow. Um, so for the new gardener, that's what I would say, you know, try really try starting to make your own compost. It's not hard to do. Yeah. I think that the, the effect that soil microbiota and soil health has on what we grow on our, our properties and, and even in pots, even in pots, you can you can help the soil microbes in containers as well by choosing the right 
amendments and the right way to feed those plants that doesn't involve those chemical fertilizers. Um, you know, finding things that have the beneficial mycorrhizae in them and stuff, because, it, you know, study after study is showing that, you know, the contents of the soil are, and I don't know why this is a surprise to anybody, but the contents of the soil are directly related to the contents of the plant and what that plant provides to us, which is directly related to what we are consuming. And that whole phrase, you are what you eat, is absolutely true. You know, and so looking at things that, you know, we've got this, uh, I don't know, epidemic of, of, knowing that what we are getting in the grocery store now is not nearly as nutritious as it was 50 years ago. And that is in part due to the farming practices and soil depletion and all these other things. Um, and that same thing does translate over to when we're growing it ourselves. Yes, when you grow it yourself, you are definitely getting a higher level of nutrition just from a freshness standpoint. You know, that that produce has less of a chance of, of degrading from the time it comes from your garden to your plate as it does if it's been shipped in from 1500 miles away. But also your own personal practices in your garden and with your soil is also going to affect the nutritional content of that produce that you're bringing into your house. So the more, you know, of a, of a whole bodied, I guess, approach to it when you're looking at your soil health and the nutrition of the plant, the better off you are. I will say right. too, when, you know, you're talking about positioning of your garden, um, you also, when you're trying to decide where you're going to position the garden, pay attention to any obstructions as well that mm -hmm. might change throughout the season. You know, if, if you're planning your, your first garden and you're out there in the very early spring and you're looking at the way the light is shifting and where it's hitting, yeah. but there are mm -hmm. trees there that don't have any leaves on them currently, that spot that you're standing in may be full sun right now, but four months from now, when those leaves have completely filled on that tree, now you might be in shade for half of the day. So that is one thing that can take into consideration too. look at your trees, look at your buildings, look at your fence lines, all of those different things and try to center your garden someplace where it is going to get full sun. And if you don't have that, Again, the container thing, being able to move pots around is a fantastic solution to that. You can also just know that you're going to plan your garden for plants that are more suited to a part shade situation. Um, mm -hmm. And and just know that that part of your garden is is what's going to that's what's going to go go there. And then the rest of it's going to have to be those movable containers. But I think people would be really surprised at how much food you can grow on your back porch in Absolutely. nothing but pots and containers. A ton of food. Yes, you can. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel like for my husband and I, we have lived that. Um, when we first started our homesteading journey, we were smack dab in the middle of downtown Phoenix. I mean... If you know anything about the Phoenix metropolitan area, there's a there's a road called Central, and that goes right through the heart of downtown Phoenix. That is a concrete jungle. That's where we started homesteading was in that con that concrete journal uh, jungle, and um, that's what we did. Containers, you know. And then finally, we we 
got another place. We rented another place right around the corner and that had a backyard and we grew that backyard and then we outgrew that and, and, you know, just kept going on and on and on. But that's how we started. It was containers. And, you know, some of my best yields were from those containers. You know, I mean, I have a 3,200 square foot garden right now and I, you know, I have a family now, but at that time, man, those containers, they kept us happy. They kept us in salad for a long time, you know, and there are certain things that I just prefer to grow in containers anyway, because I have much more control over what is going on. You know, I mean, I am on 40 acres and a full four acres of that um, is cultivated and planted directly in the ground for produce. And yes, I have 15 raised beds that are, I refer to as my kitchen garden that are out front. And that is, I mean, I use that stuff all the time and Mm -hmm. I'm constantly rotating plants through there. And the yield out of those raised planters is astonishing at times compared to what is coming out of the fields. So, I mean, if you're a beginning gardener, you can start with just a pot, one pot and figure it out from there. Absolutely. I I always tell people start with a salad because I I, I don't know of anybody that doesn't like salad. Start, start growing a salad, all Mm -hmm. the stuff that you would put minus the bacon bits, but you know, all of the things that you're going to, yeah. Cause you're not going to grow bacon bits in a container pot. I just, just side note, but um, all of the things that you want in a salad grow, you can grow in container pots. You can grow your parsley. You can grow your, obviously your lettuce. You can grow all of those things in there, put it in. And then that's how you get, that's how you get started. You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So for those of us who are more seasoned gardeners, what's the best, what do you think is the best time for a person? And when I say more seasoned, I'm talking about a person who maybe this is like their, their second year, third year. I always think the third year gardener, Lord bless you, because that's the hardest year. I, I I feel for the third year gardener. If any of you are out there listening and this is your third year, just brace up for impact. This is going to be your hard year. I, I don't know why that is, but it just seems like your first since your first year, it's like, oh my goodness, I'm growing all this food. Second year is like, yeah, I think I know what I'm doing. The third year is like, I don't know what I'm doing. What happened? And I I have a sneaky suspicion about that because I know why it was for me. Like I mentioned, I knew nothing about soil fertility. I knew nothing about the fact that I was pulling nutrients out of the soil, but I wasn't adding anything back into it. I knew, you know, I I knew compost was good and I was composting, but I didn't know what I was doing with it. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't know about, you know, integrated pest management and weed management and all that kinds of stuff. And so those first two years, things are going really well and everything's coming in and, you know, it's great. And there's not a whole lot of weed pressure and there's not a whole lot of bugs and there's, you know, Uh and all of a sudden that third year, the soil's getting a little depleted. You're kind of planting in a little bit of a monoculture. So now the pests are starting to find your plants and, Mm -hmm. you know, the weeds are (laughs) popping up because you keep tilling that soil up and it keeps bringing all these weed seeds up. And all of a sudden you're going, Oh, what happened? <laughs> there's <laughs> weeds everywhere and there's all these bugs and they're not growing like they used to. And so that's like the learning year of, 
Oh, Mm -hmm. okay. I need to start feeding this soil and I need to intermix all of my plants to make sure that, you know, I'm trying to disguise them from these insect pests and I need to put mulch down so I'm not getting these weeds popping up and I need to stop tilling that soil because all I'm doing is bringing the weed seeds up and it's making it worse. Mm -hmm. I think that's why third year gardening is so hard because you know, you don't, you didn't know what you were doing. And now all of a sudden the plants are telling you, Hey, <laughs> this is what you're supposed to be doing. <laughs> right. <laughs> it, it's just, it's like the third year is just enough to hurt your pride. Cause you're just like, wow, yes. I really don't know. So for that third year gardener, man, that, that right there out the gate, you gave some really good advice. If this is your second or third year, you really need to start honing in your skill set. Um, first year gardeners, we've already addressed you guys. Go have fun. Just make sure your garden is positioned right. You're you're probably going to be okay. But your third year gardener, second and third year, feed your soil. That's the time you really need to feed it. And I know for myself, um, and Karen, you can tell me what you do, but in addition to really making sure you have your soil tested, I am a strong believer on that um, because I've seen it where if you don't test your soil, you're adding stuff to your soil. You're thinking, oh, you know what? I need to put some bone meal in here and blah, blah, blah. You may not even need that. And then all of a sudden you're dealing with a whole other set of problems simply because you didn't test. So test your soil, add the right amendments as you as you can. Um, one of the things is uh, if you've got somebody, I always think if you've got somebody that that has maybe some cow manure. It's a weird thing. It's like, hi, can I have your, can I have your cow manure? But, you know, as gardeners, we're going to do what we need to do. Okay. (laughs) But, you know, get, get some, get some fertilizer, learn how to make uh, fertilizer out of nettle, Um, stinging, stinging nettles. You can make your own nettle. Uh, your own nettle teas, you can, if you know somebody that has rabbits, I'm looking at my rabbit tree right now and I'm thinking, yeah, I've got to clean it out and add it to the soil. If you keep rabbits, use that rabbit manure, do anything and everything that you can to amend your soil and amend it properly. Um, Because by that second or third year, it is depleted. It's, it's, it's done. And everybody knows your zip code by that time and the address on your house. So everybody's going to be coming because the reality is the sicker your plants are, the more pests are going to, they, they really hone in. And that's just written in the nature of things. The sick always get plucked off first, um, whether you're dealing with animals or plants. So when you have a healthy, strong plant that's getting all of the nutrition that it needs, it can weather a lot of those, those pests, a lot of the diseases, it can weather that. And it's, doing it because it's getting it from the soil. But if you're not, if your soil is depleted and you just keep planting and planting, your plants are going to be sicker and sicker. They're not going to be able to weather the um, the pest. They're not going to be able to handle the diseases. And then guess what? You're going to be eating off of that plant and that's not going to be helping you in the long run either. So to those who are a more seasoned gardener, amend your soil without, I'm a, I'm very pro no dig gardening style. So amend your soil without disturbing it. So that way you're not getting those extra, those extra weed seeds 
cropping up everywhere. <laughs> yeah. And I think too, it doesn't have to be complicated, you know, and, and it, it obviously part of this depends on where you're gardening, but for the majority of us, the best time to do this is going to be in the fall after you have started to clear out the majority of, you know, your summer garden or even your fall garden, unless you have something that is holding in place and, and overwintering, or you are in a very warm climate where you are getting a lot of winter growth. Um, it, it doesn't have to be where, you know, oh, I need to add, you know, six ounces of this and I have to add X number of pounds of this because my, my soil test came back saying that I was nitrogen depleted or whatever the case may be. Yes, it can get very complicated. It doesn't have to be. If you have a good source of compost, um, whether it's, you know, something that you're making yourself or something that you're bringing in commercially. Um, and, you know, like you said, if you have a, some sort of a source of, of, of an animal manure of some sort, um, or something like a nettle tea or something that you have kind of created yourself and you layer that on in the fall, it's doing a couple of different things. Number one, you're not going to have to turn that soil because you're covering it, you're protecting it. Um, as it breaks down over the winter time, it is going to feed that soil. It's also feeding the microbes that are in the soil. So, and those microbes are slowly pulling all that nutrition down where it needs to be. You are also keeping weeds at bay because you covered that soil up. So you don't have, even if it's weed seeds that are being blown in, they're going to land on the top of that compost essentially that you've thrown down. In the springtime, if those start to sprout, it's very easy to just sort of rake that and mm -hmm. those weeds are gone. If you are digging down into the dirt and you're pulling up, um, you know, you're turning that soil over, seed, uh, weed seeds have a very, very long life in dormancy. They can stay, there are some weed seeds that can last for 30 years or longer and the more you're turning that soil over, the more you're bringing it up. But if you're just layering on top over and over and over again, and you're planting directly into what you put down that previous fall, you're not going to have that problem. And that and that fertility is already going to be there. You know, yes, should you still be testing that? Absolutely. Because compost in and of itself is not actually giving the nutrients back the way that you think they do. Yes, there are nutrients in, in that compost, but it needs to be broken down before any of that is available to your plants. And you're relying on the microbiota to do that for you. The more alive your soil is, the more those nutrients can be moved to those plant roots. And then the better off those plants are going to be. But it is still possible to not have enough nutrients available depending on the composition of what you've put down. So you absolutely should test again in the spring to make sure that you're not depleted of anything. And then you can add nutrients or amendments like feather meal or bone meal or whatever it is that you that you need based on what you're short of. But yeah, you don't want to be feeding just willy-nilly, you know, whatever you've got in the way of these high nutrient amendments because nutrient toxicity is absolutely a thing and your plants can absolutely have too much of a good thing. And those symptoms can be just as bad as a plant that is deficient and they can have the same reaction where they're not strong enough to withstand diseases and weed pressure and the pests that come in. So, you know, it really does all go back to the soil, but it doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be Absolutely. math every single time you do it, you know? 
Absolutely. And, you know, I, I should say this when I was talking about getting the, the animal fertilizer, the, the, the rabbit manure, the cow manure, my recommendation is do not put that directly into your soil right away and then decide that you're going to plant on top of that. I guess I didn't say that out loud and that's not good for a podcaster, but um, it was in my head was go put that on top of your compost pile, let it break down, Um, let that break down. And then, like you said, it will become nutrient available once it's broken down in the compost pile, then you can put that on top of your soil and, and feed your soil that way. That was in my head. It didn't come out of my mouth. (laughs) <laughs> it happens. It happens to the best of us, right? <laughs> so those are that's so that's really we've really been talking a lot about soil. Um let's break away though and talk about something that's slightly different. Um and this is all about planning your garden and that is uh, one thing I know a lot of people are not aware of or they don't understand the purpose of it. Um, and if somebody is a listener to your podcast, if somebody's listened to my pod, our podcast here, um, you know, from, I am all about knowing your growing zone. Um, I, I can't, I, I think I've preached this enough you need to know what gardening zone you are that you're in. And that's because that's going to tell you, it's going to give you a rough estimate of your first and your last frost date. That's important. That is super important because if you are growing, you know, the gardening season, let me, let me put this a different way. The gardening season at nurseries gets started a lot sooner than the gardening season season should start on your property nine times out of 10. And that's just because that's how the nursery business is set up. It's set up to do that Um, for good or for bad. We're not going to get into that, but that's just how it goes. So you go to your local nursery or your big box store and you happen to see all of these seed starts and you're like, Oh, it's, it's, it's March 1st and I'm in Ohio and I'm, I'm using Ohio as an example. It's March 1st. I'm in Ohio. There's snow on the ground, but oh, they've got these broccoli starts that, oh, maybe I can grow the broccoli. And, you know, my last frost date isn't until April 15th, but I can start growing broccoli now. No, you can't wait patience. You can't do it right now. And that's because it's not the time for your area. If April 15th is your last frost date, you might be able to get away with it a couple of weeks ahead of time on something like brassicas because they're cold, they're cold weather, they're they're cold weather plants. But don't put your tomatoes in there. Don't, you know, so, but there's a reason, there's a rhyme and a reason for the first and last frost date. So I really want to talk about that because I, I think I've just talked myself to death with people on this. So I'd like to hear somebody else talk about this. 
<laughs> so Karen, I think it, it, it it's, you know, yeah, it's, it's important to know a couple of things. It's important to know your growing zone and, and what that is, what that means. Um, but then also to have a handle on your, your first and last frost dates and also have a handle on your soil temperature and your microclimate where you are. Okay. So there's, there's a few things going on here. Your USDA growing zone is basically telling you this is what the average lowest temperature is for you where you are growing. And really what that's telling you is in this particular area in this climate, um, these plants are going to be perennial because they can handle that cold. These plants are not. That's the gist of it. You know, it's in, and when you add in your first and last frost date, that's going to give you an idea of when you can start to plant things and how hardy they're going to be. If you're, like you said, if your last frost date on average isn't until April 15th, then you have the ability to be able to start counting backwards um, based on what it is that you want to grow from that date, approximately. But your your growing zone is telling you, yes, during the the you know the the average over the last twenty years says that your average coldest temperature is generally around you know five degrees Fahrenheit. Okay, well, that tells you also what you might be able to overwinter too. That's that's something else to keep in mind, especially if we're talking about four season gardening and we're talking about providing as much as we can for ourselves. There are things that you can plant in the fall and get them to maturity before you have your first hard freeze, which is the other date that you should know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you can cover them and let them stay in that sort of, you know, stasis depending on the zone that you are in. If you live somewhere where your average temperatures in the wintertime are in negative 15 Fahrenheit, eh, there's not a whole lot of things that you're going to be able to overwinter easily. Mm-hmm. Um you know, but your 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 first and last frost date is or should be used in conjunction with a soil thermometer, okay? Because like you mentioned, that stuff starts showing up at the garden center really, really early on. And like you said, you might be able to get away with putting those cool season crops into the ground and having them survive. They might not thrive, but they will survive and then they will kick in once that temperature gets to the right temperature. But if those tomatoes are sitting there, you know, the 15th of April and you say, oh, okay, we're past our last frost date. I can go ahead and throw those tomato plants in the ground. Um, And you're your soil is still 45 degrees Fahrenheit <laughs> or colder, <laughs> exactly. those tomatoes are not going to be happy. Um, you do have the possibility of another, you know, another frost at that point, because those, those dates really are only about 30% accurate. Um, so you need to make sure that you're watching your weather. Um, we, you know, it's always been told here in West Central Missouri, it's always been, oh, well, you know, everybody plants their tomatoes on Mother's Day. By Mother's Day, the weather has settled enough and, you know, it should be warm enough to be able to start planting. And while that is a good gauge, if you have not tested the temperature of your soil and your soil is not warm enough yet, those plants are likely to just sit there. 
there those those roots are not going to start actively moving around and stretching around and trying to get to those nutrients because that plant is basically in survival mode at that point because it is too cold for them. And so what does that do? It opens you up to pest predation because the plants are now weakened. Um, it also opens you up to your plant being very stunted because now it has to recover from the transplant shock, and that's going to take a lot longer to happen. You also are prone to root rot at that point because if those roots are not actively taking up the moisture that they need and there's too much moisture in that soil, it's just going to sit there. And that can lead to root rot, which is eventually going to kill your plant. So you know, if there, if there was something that, you know, you can do to help hedge your bets on that, it is to take it and soil thermometers are, they're easy to find. They're super cheap. You want to test about four inches down into the soil to make sure that the temperatures are warm enough for whatever it is that you're planting. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, that that it is cool enough for whatever it is that you want to plant. When you start getting into fall gardening, sometimes, you know, in certain areas, that soil has gotten really, really hot during the summertime. And if you've got a soil temperature that is sitting at 85 degrees, two inches down, and you're wanting to plant something that is a cool weather crop that likes the soil to be 65 degrees, it's going to kill the seed, you know, and you will Mm -hmm. have just wasted all that seed and you're going to end up having to replant again. So, you know, there's a lot of different nuances that go into trying to get an early jump on the garden. And I get that everybody wants to get their stuff as early as possible, especially if you are in a climate that has a very short growing season. You know, my Northern gardeners, I mean, you guys, yeah, I I get it. You have, you know, a four month period where you got to grow as much as you possibly can. So you want to get in there as early as possible. And you can, you know, there are season extension things that you can do to absolutely hurry that process up. You can, you know, layer down black, you know, tarps and stuff onto your soil to get it to capture all that solar heat and start to warm the soil up. And then you can use row covers and you can make, you know, little mini greenhouses with just plastic coverings over top of your plants. There's all kinds of tricks to use, but having an understanding of where you are gardening and what your usual temperatures are during the off season and then when your frost date is and what those soil temperatures are as you move into the growing season are all things that are just going to propel you forward and make your garden experience that much better because you're going to increase your yield and you won't see so much frustration from these plants that just aren't doing what you were hoping they would do. Mm-hmm. And uh, to your point, I I really think it's important for all gardeners to be aware of your microclimate because your microclimate is specific to your property. Like for example, here on our property, we have cow pasture um, in back of us and in the front of us. So there is no windbreak. So our property is windy and it's cold. Um, just like we were talking about before, you know, we we dip down into the teens overnight here and it's because we don't have a windbreak. So it's just the cold and we're in a valley. So the cold just, it just settles right down in here. But if you were to like, let's say if you were to go on to your cell phone and you were to look at a weather app for our city, for where we're at, it would say, oh, you know, the temperature is 25 degrees. I know for us, we have a... Um, I can't think of the name of it. 
but it's it's a thermometer that has where the thermometer is outside, but it, the temperature reads on the inside. And we can look at our temperature and the temperature on our property is like 18 degrees. But if you look at the weather app, it says it's 25 degrees. That's because we have a microclimate. And then if you take that in conjunction with what you said, the soil thermometer, you're getting a nice picture of what your specific property is going to look like temperature wise. And especially for those of you, especially for those of you who are doing transplants, um, because I know that's how I grow. I, I have my indoor grow lights. I've got that all set up in my garage and then I transplant everything out, but I can't do that until the temperature, the soil temperature is just right. And that is super imperative, especially for those of you who are your second and third year gardeners. I don't know why you first year gardeners can get away with it, but you do, but your second and third year gardeners really pay attention to that soil temperature because you're at a point now where your skill level needs to level up and you really need to be paying attention to that to that uh, soil temp because that is where your plants are going to live your plants can you know if the outside temperature is kind of cool you know for your cool loving plants the plants that like the colder temperature if your outside temperature if the air around you is kind of cool that's fine but if that soil temperature is, is hot it's not going to make it. So it's really important. So accuracy on that, as you level up, your accuracy is super important. And then I know for myself, I don't know about you, Karen, but for myself, I've made it a goal this year. I'm not growing any hybrids. Oh, okay. Wow. Oh, I, I took a deep dive from fall and going into winter, learning all about seed saving. Now I've done, I've dabbled in it before, but this year I have made a commitment to myself. No F1, no hybrids. I'm going to be saving my seeds. And so I really feel like that is an important part of garden planning. Um, And I wonder if you've got any tips and tricks. And actually, we should probably explain to those of you who don't know what the difference is between an F1. Those of you in Britain know what I mean when I say F1, but or hybrid. <laughs> we call it hybrid here in the United States. F1 is everywhere else. We all have to, we just have to be different. But um, and versus an heirloom variety of seed. Um, so what are some of your tips, tricks on, on incorporating that into your garden planning? So the, the, there's a few things to remember. So F1 or an F1 hybrid is essentially the, the first generation offspring of the crossing of two and sometimes up to four um, other plants, the, the parent plants. Generally speaking, the reason we have F1 hybrids is to make an improvement in some way of the 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 crop itself, right? So whether that is disease resistance, whether it's uh, an improved flavor or a a higher yield, or like in the case of tomatoes, you know you want them to crack less, whatever that is. Um, you are taking two different plants and you are trying to get the best traits out of both of them in their their offspring. 
And this is done, you know, very methodically. It's it's done usually using traditional plant breeding practices, but you are being very specific about I'm taking the pollen from this plant and I am, you know, fertilizing this plant with it. And then you are growing this fruit and that spring, uh, that, that, um, that seed is the offspring of that. The problem with hybrids is that when you take the seed that comes from that hybrid plant, so say you've bought your F1 hybrid tomato seeds and you have grown your fruits and you have harvested your fruits. If you save the seeds from that tomato, it is not necessarily going to reproduce true to type because that first generation, the genetics are not stable at that point. It has taken the the genes from both of those parent plants and you have created this this new you know type of tomato essentially. Um, there is no guarantee that the the seeds that you plant from that aren't going to revert back to one or or both of the other the other parents. It's not that you won't get tomatoes. I mean, in most instances, they're, they're not necessarily going to be sterile, although that does happen too. You may have sterile seed that has produced, um, so it won't grow anything or it will grow a plant that doesn't produce any fruit. Um, but you just don't know what you're going to get. And so if you really want that particular type of tomato, you have to repurchase that seed over and over again every year because it needs to be basically hybridized every single year. Now, an open pollinated plant is one that reproduces true to type um, every single time. It is its genetics are stable. You can grow that plant. You can grab the seeds from its offspring. You can replant it, and it will reproduce true to type the next year. Is there going to be some variation? Yes, absolutely, because that's how genetics work. But the majority of the time, it is going to have the same flavor profile. It's going to be about the same size. It's going to have the same look, et cetera. An heirloom is an open pollinated variety that has existed as its type for at least 75 years. Some places say 50 years, but the general acceptance is 75 years, which means that doesn't necessarily mean that it didn't start out as a hybrid of some sort, because again, F1 hybrids, you're using those traditional methods of crossbreeding. It just means that when that plant crossbred, whether it was intentional or not, um, and you saved the seeds from it and then planted them again, oh, it came back. It was the same as it was before. Or it means that somebody did that and they only chose the fruits that next year that did match that original plant. There may have been plenty of other variations, but they chose the one that they wanted that had the traits that they wanted and they planted it again. And they kept doing that until it finally stabilized. So there are plants out there that are open pollinated. They may not necessarily be heirlooms because they're not that old, but they are open pollinated now, but they started as hybrids and they have just gotten themselves to the point where they're stable. So they can now be saved and reproduce, you know, the same way every single year. So when we talk about our garden planning, if we want to save our own seeds and we want to be a little bit more self-sufficient in, in that manner and make sure that we have a steady supply of our own seeds, 
then we need to be choosing varieties that are open pollinated. But as we plan, we also need to make sure that those plants that we plan to save the seeds from are far enough away from each other that they aren't going to cross pollinate with each other because open pollinated plants can cross with each other. Hybrids, mm-hmm. not as much. But, you know, the but the open pollinated ones for sure. So if you have three different varieties of open pollinated tomatoes that you want to grow, you need to make sure that they are far enough away from each other where there's not going to be a ton of cross pollination. Um, we call this isolation. And, you know, with tomatoes, it's a little bit easier because they're mostly self pollinating. Um, you know, it just takes a little bit of a shake and they're and they're pollinating themselves. They're not reliant on insects, but things like corn, corn cross pollinates very, very easily. Um, so if you have a sweet corn variety, you know, that you're growing and you have another one over here, you need to make sure that they are either distanced from each other or they are maturing at different rates to where they're not being pollinated at the same time so that there's no chance of cross pollination. Mm-hmm. So you know, in terms of planning, it takes a little bit more to try to save seeds, in which case you really need to be planning your garden out appropriately. One of the best ways to do this is to choose which seeds you're going to save that year. If you are planning on, you want to make sure that you have stocked up on squash seeds, for instance, then plant one single variety of those squash that year. And that way you don't have a chance of cross-pollinating. But make sure that you're you're also recognizing that certain things are also in the same, the same family as each other. So, um, you know, if it says cucumis milo, it doesn't matter if, if it's a cantaloupe or if it's a cucumber, it's in the same genus. So yes, they can cross-pollinate. And I think the misconception mm-hmm. is cross-pollination is going to affect this year's fruits. And it absolutely does not as far as our eating is concerned. If you have a cantaloupe that cross-pollinates with a cucumber, they're both going to grow as a cantaloupe and a cucumber. But saving the seeds from each one of those, you might plant Mm -hmm. what you think is cucumber, and you're going to end up with something that looks like a cucamelon or whatever, because it's it's not. That's where the cross-pollination comes in. So that's the the thing to think about is just distance and isolation if you're going to save your own seeds. Wow. And... A follow-up question for you, because I'm happy to pick your brain on this. <laughs> yeah. But um, a follow-up question for you is, how much space should the gardener set aside to have, uh, like, how many plants do you think they should set aside so that they can save the seeds? Like, should they save the seeds from just one particular plant or should they go to the gardener at towards, this is more towards the end of the year, but you know, should they look at all of their, their fruits and see which one looks the best or should, while you're planting your garden, say, I'm going to just set aside this. I'm going to plant, let's say, I don't know, 10, 10 squash plants, you know, crook neck squash plants, but this plant over here, I'm going to save just a little bit of space for this one because this is the one that I'm going to harvest my seeds from. Yeah. At what particular point does the gardener make that decision and make that call? And does how does that affect their planning? 
Sure. Well, you know, it, it's the good thing is, is that with most of our garden vegetables, there are a lot of seeds in one of those fruit. You know, I mean, if you look at the number of seeds that come out of a tomato or the number of seeds that are out of a full-sized zucchini, there are mm-hmm. a lot. So the home gardener doesn't usually have to save a ton of fruit mm-hmm. in order to be able to have enough seeds. So you have to go back to look at your goals. Um how many do you normally plant in your season, right? For for you and your family. And then how many years worth of seeds do you are you trying to save? If you want to make sure, because this is the year that I'm saving zucchini, and I know that zucchini seeds have a viability of about four to five years. Do I want to save four years worth of seeds right now? And that way next year I can focus on saving tomatoes. And the year after that, I can you know focus on peppers. It's your goals, okay? So that's the first thing. That just means that you want to make sure that you have enough plants to be able to support that goal. In most instances, unless it's something very, you know, very specialized, what you normally grow for yourselves, you are going to be able to take a handful of those fruits and be able to set them aside. If you want to grow one extra plant just to hedge your bets and make sure that you have enough, then fine, go for that. But I don't think you really need to plan for, you know, five or 10 additional plants because you want to save your seeds. You're going to get plenty of seeds. Mm -hmm. You should be making the decision about which ones to save during the season as the plants are growing. You want to save the very best specimen. So you might grow that prized tomato and be really, really tempted to like show that off and use that in your cooking and on a nice charcuterie board or whatever. Um, But that's the one that you want to macerate and get all the seeds out of and, and save because you want the best genetics. Okay. The second part about that too, is making sure that you understand at what point you should be harvesting those seeds. So if you are trying to save the seeds from your zucchinis, you are not going to pick that zucchini when it is young and tender the way that we normally eat them fresh. That is an immature fruit. And those seeds, as a result, are going to be immature, which means that they will not hold well and they likely do not have an embryo in them in order to be able to sprout the next season. You have to wait until you have those giant baseball bat-sized zucchinis that now have a very thickened skin on the outside to where you can hardly press your fingernail into it. Mm -hmm. Um, That is a mature zucchini. That is a mature squash. So once it's kind of hardened off and everything else, then you're going to collect that and harvest it for its seeds. And at that point, you'll you'll definitely see the difference because you'll open it up and you'll see the size of the zucchini seeds are going to look like what you got out of the seed packet that you bought. They're going to be big. Once you dry them, they're going to be very hard and they're going to be able to store better. So look a little bit into the basics of seed saving before you decide that that's what you're going to do or make the decision that you're going to do it and plan for it, but make sure you're educating yourself throughout the season. So once you do have the point where you can actually pick those fruits to to harvest them, you know what you're looking for based on what you're trying to save. Excellent. Excellent. And one last question. Should the gardener, a person like myself, if you are looking to make that switch from hybrids, I know for myself personally, there is this very specific type of hybrid tomato. It's called a heat master. 
It's a hybrid. And we live in the desert Southwest. It gets hot during the summertime. That particular tomato can produce, it can still produce and ripen fruit over 95 degrees Fahrenheit. It's, it's a fantastic tomato. If you're in the desert, if you're in a high temp area, it's a really good tomato. Tastes really good, has a good acidity level. However, it's a hybrid. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so if you're trying to wean yourself off of that, um, and I'm probably choosing the wrong example. I should have stuck with any of the cucurbit family because of the cross-pollination, but we'll just go with it. Um, let's say, you know, the 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 hybrid tomato plant, is there a risk if you plant an heirloom next to it? Is there a risk of cross-pollination with your heirloom? Yeah, the the risk is there. Um it's a little bit lower, you know, I mean, and yes, you're, you're correct in the fact that the risk is definitely lower when you come to tomatoes. Um, yeah. it's, it's higher you know, with, with the curcubits and stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's higher with the, with the curcubits for, for sure. And yes, hybrids can cross pollinate each other and hybrids can cross pollinate with heirlooms as well. Um, you know, so unless you are growing a, 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 a hybrid variety that is naturally sterile in some way, shape, or form, um, you do have a risk there. So it's definitely going to be an isolation thing. And that's where if you're just starting to build up your seed stash and you're just starting to plan for seed saving, um, isolation is going to be key. And if you really, really, really want to grow that particular hybrid grow it by itself, you know, or, or grow the one that you're trying to save the seed from off by itself somewhere, which mm-hmm. is why I say, you know, it, you, you can start slow with it and, you know, just decide which ones you're going to save this year. I'm doing one tomato. I'm doing one zucchini. I'm doing one, whatever, and go from there. And I will say, you know, if, from my standpoint, there is absolutely nothing wrong with growing hybrids. Um, they like, like you pointed out, you know, that particular variety is fantastic for your area. And there's a really good reason why you grow that, you know, from a self-sustaining standpoint, you can have those, those heirloom varieties and those open pollinated varieties that you save so that you know that you have your own seeds. But the trick to this is you can continue to grow that hybrid variety while you are acclimating the seeds that you are saving to do better in your area, which is the the reason why we choose the ones that have done the best. If I have a plant in my garden that has survived an onslaught of pests, it has survived an onslaught of disease, it made its way through a drought and still produce this beautiful fruit for me, those are the genetics that I want, right? right? And that is where you get a lot of these heirloom varieties um, are considered a landrus, which means that it has been developed in a particular area to do well in that particular area. And mm-hmm. so if you're doing heirlooms, a really good thing to do is to choose heirlooms that have come from the area where you are gardening. And they will be much less susceptible to a lot of the things that other, you know, heirloom and and hybrid varieties alike 
um, might be susceptible to in, in your area because they at this point have now taken on a lot of the traits that like your native plants would take on because they have done well. So the more that you propagate this particular plant in your garden and the more trials it has to go through in order to be able to survive, you keep picking the best of the best and saving it and replanting it. You have now developed your own Landris for your particular garden. And, you know, in that manner, you are making yourself a little bit more self-sufficient because you have this one that you know that eventually, maybe, might get to be just as good as that hybrid that you've been buying. And then you can just ditch the hybrid and you'll have your own. <laughs> so Exactly. And I know for me, that's my plan is to, to do it exactly like that. Wow. This has been a really good episode. Um, Karen, I... I'm looking forward and hopefully we can have you back um, later on in the the growing season, because I think for us listeners, for our listeners, I think we would really like to unpack the, you're at the end of the gardening season and and you're trying to save those seeds. Um, I think that's something that a lot of people want to learn how to do. Like I said, I just finally broke down this year and or this past year and bought my first book on it. I am not an expert, but <laughs> but you are. <laughs> so we're putting you on the spot here, but we would love to have you back on the show at towards the end of the gardening season. And we can really dive, take a deep dive into seed saving um, because that it there it's an art. It, it really is an art form. Um, and I think a lot of people really are interested in moving into being a little bit more self-sufficient, a little, you know, saving, saving your seeds and not having to rely on a, a, on a seed company is I think really becoming important to people because we're starting to see things are, you know, getting a little bit tight on the supply chain side. So it's, it's a good time. This is a really good year to learn how to do that. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. You know, the, 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 as more people get into gardening and we see, you know, especially what we saw at the beginning of 2020 when everybody was going to be home oh, and they yikes. all decided they were going to start a garden and all the seed suppliers went, whoa, what happened? We did mm-hmm. not prepare for this. And there was a lot of shortages. Um, yeah, you can absolutely hedge your bets by, you know, uh, uh, making sure that you have your own stock and that you can replant and do these things again and again. I think it's a fantastic time to learn. I would be happy to come back on and talk all about that. Well, we will be happy to have you back. (laughs) Well, Karen, this has been an excellent interview. It has been so much fun to have you on here. Thank you for being our guest. So um, before we close out, please let our listeners know, how can they find you? How can they learn more about gardening? Where, where's all your social media? We're going to put all of that in the show notes below, but how can they find you? Absolutely. I appreciate you. I thank you for having me. This was fantastic. And I appreciate you <laughs> asking. Um, it is the podcast is just grow something. You can find it wherever 
you listen to your podcast, you can also listen to it directly from my website, which is justgrowsomethingpodcast.com. I also got all kinds of articles and stuff out there um, that I write periodically on all of the topics that I talk about on the podcast. And I'm all over social, you know, Instagram and um, Facebook. I am Just Grow Something Podcast. And uh, TikTok is Just Grow Something. And YouTube is coming soon. We'll get there. We'll get there. Super excited. (laughs) (laughs) We will stay tuned. (laughs) Well, that is it from all of us here on our homestead. Karen, thank you so much for joining us. So from all of us to all of you, wherever you are in the world, stay safe out there and happy homesteading. 